we now come to the third spiritual phenomena that can be achieved using the meditative device. If you recall, we had covered the first two quite uh, uh, at length. And the first spiritual phenomena that we had covered, of course, was um, the concept of Nevoah, and then we went and we covered the concept of, of course, Ruach HaKodesh. And we are now into the third spiritual phenomena that one can actually accomplish by using the meditative device. This area or phenomena is called Shinui Teva, which translated means the alteration, or if you want to look at it, the violation of natural law. To actually change, interfere with the natural order of things. Another term for it is called white magic. White as distinguished from black magic, because in black magic, as we will see, what is employed is the uh, use or the powers of evil forces. With some white magic, it has nothing to do with these evil forces. Um, it's rather, uh, you, what you do is you interfere in the certain aspects of the structure of reality. Now, in order to understand how Shinui Teva, or alteration of natural law, how this could be achieved, and also its relationship to the act of meditation, it is really first necessary to present certain fundamental concepts concerning the structure of reality. Then and only then can one really grasp the phenomena that is made to occur, which is Shinui Teva, alteration of natural law. And also, one can then also really grasp the underlying rationale of why it can transpire at all. In other words, we can also understand why the device is meditation. So therefore, in order to understand these two ideas, <clears throat> how deviation or how Shinui Teva can occur, and also why meditation is that device and how it is able to do what it does, you really have to present <clears throat> certain fundamental ideas about the actual structure of reality. In other words, we must understand what is Teva or natural law? What is its definition? What do we mean by Teva? And also, why does it occur? <clears throat> And also, by the way, if we understand what Teva is and why it occurs, we also understand, of course, what Ness is, or uh, miracle, what that really also is. In any case, we must understand what is Teva, or natural law, why it occurs, and only then can we understand what it means to deviate from natural law, and how this can come about through the meditative device. Actually, on a deeper level, <coughs> we really have to understand the mechanism of Teva, what is the mechanism of natural law? What is the governing or determining principles of natural law? Then <clears throat> we have to try to understand on a deeper level, how does one deviate from that mechanism? How do you cause a mechanistic deviation? What does that mean? Because that's really what it means to uh, employ Shinui uh, Teva, uh, is that the mechanism is made to deviate, to depart from its normal uh, opera uh, operation. In other words, we have to understand the deviation of that mechanism from its normal operative mode. And thirdly, we have to understand that and the device that can be employed to initiate the mechanistic deviation. So that is really three things that we want to zero in on. One is the fundamental structure of reality, the mechanism that governs natural law. The second thing we want to try to understand is 
what is the idea of deviation of that mechanism? How do you actually interfere, or what does it mean to, when we say that the mechanism which governs natural law is disturbed or interfered with, and we then witness a deviation from natural order because we witnessed a mechanistic deviation, a deviation or an intrusion on the actual mechanism itself? And the third thing that we want to understand is the concept of the device. What is the device that allows us to interfere with the mechanism and thereby uh, create the phenomena of magic or shinui teva? And what is the relationship between that mechanism, or rather that device, and the actual result that ensues, which of course is the deviation from the mechanism itself? This, these are really the three areas that we want to study. Now, all phenomena can be explained through a perfectly logical system, even magic. Magic can be explained very readily if we understand the structure of reality. White magic, or Shinoi Teva, even though it appears mysterious to us and seems to defy any coherent explanation, also conforms to strict rules and limitations and actually uh, adheres to a rational framework as to how it works. There is no such thing as a phenomena without any framework to explain it. And that is an error that is made. People think that magic is literally magic, that it has no understanding, and that somehow it mysteriously can alter natural order. But the truth is that magic itself has a framework in which it emerges from, and when somebody performs Shinoi Teva, he is merely making use of the concepts of that framework, and therefore he is able to exhibit the phenomena called magic or Shinoi Teva. In other words, there is no such thing as a phenomena that cannot be explained or has no basis in the real world. Even magic has a basis in the real world because it avails itself of a framework in which it can operate and it results when an individual interferes with natural order, when he interferes with the mechanism via the rules of magic. <clears throat> now, also, one cannot assume that when we witness, as Jews have done for thousands of years, events which clearly run contrary to our experience and seem to violate natural law, we cannot assume when we witness these phenomena that it is unexplainable and therefore unintelligible. That is not the truth. The reality is that Shinoi Teva or any alteration of natural order can be explained fully as long as we understand the framework from which it emerges. On the contrary, when we will understand the real structure of reality, in other words, physical reality and its underlying governing principles, then we will see that phenomena such as magic, Shinoi Teva, had, are, are real phenomena based on real principles. There is a reality to this phenomenon. It is not just magic. In other words, uh, phenomena which cannot be explained by any logical understanding, uh, any, uh, any uh, comprehensible ideas. Magic itself as mysterious as it is, is rooted and based in an entire system of, of reality. And that is really what we have to study. Now, this is not only true of magic, that it is ultimately rooted 
in a real framework. But it is also true of sorcery or black magic. It is true of astrology, and part of the Shia will devote itself to exactly what astrology is. Because we see from the Chumash and from the Gemara that astrology clearly is a phenomenon that exists, even though we have really lost the art of it. But the question is, it doesn't make sense. What does it mean that stars, planets have influence over our lives? What does it mean? And again, astrology itself or the astrological influences are clearly based on a real system or real framework of reality. Uh, so therefore, a real framework of reality will answer not only magic, sorcery or black magic and astrology, but also all other kinds of mysterious and unbelievable occurrences. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> part of the byproducts of this is that by viewing <clears throat> the specific phenomena of white magic, Shinuteva, black magic or Kishif, and astrology and, and so on, <clears throat> we will also be looking at a fundamental piece of the design. What is the structure of reality? What exactly determines natural law? And, and that is very important for understanding not only the phenomena, which are really deviant phenomena, but also the regular phenomena that occur as a result of this framework. Now, let us begin then into this third spiritual phenomena by the introduction of certain critical ideas that will make our understanding of this topic more profound and comprehensive. Now, first we'll begin <clears throat> with the idea which everybody knows is that there are two different kinds of reality. One is the reality of God, <clears throat> and the second is His creation. And when I mean two different kinds of reality, I really mean two different kinds of reality. The reality of God is completely different from the reality of his creation. Now, <clears throat> the Rabbanu Shalom brought into existence an entire set of beings for an ultimate purpose. And this, of course, this entire set of beings constitutes creation. But creation implies, and that's really why it happened, an ultimate purpose. Now, we know that this ultimate purpose is called Hatovah which means the bestowment of good. <clears throat> and that there should be beings existing in an indescribable state of well-being and pleasure, <clears throat> having brought about the state by their own efforts, and thereby being totally responsible for their own circumstances. This is the ultimate purpose of creation. Therefore, these beings will experience the total absolute good without any shame or loss of sense of self, since this good which they are experiencing is due solely and strictly as a result of their actions and endeavors. In other words, we know that the ultimate purpose of creation is that beings should be the recipient of an absolute state of good, which implies a state of indescribable well-being and enormous pleasure, and that they should experience this absolute good in, in a manner whereby it will have come about as a result of their own efforts, and therefore they will have been totally responsible for their own circumstances. Now, these two ideas which I am mentioning, which is, of course is the experiencing of Hatovo, without any, uh, uh, that's the first idea, and the second idea is that when they experience this Hatovo, it will be w without any impediments whatsoever in that experience, these two ideas are referred to as Hatova Shlema. 
the perfect good. That's what it's called. To experience good, the absolute good, without, without, uh, and having caused that absolute good, is called Hatova Shlema. And the reason why it is Shlema, the reason why the bestowment of this good is perfect, is because there has been a, a Tikkun of Namadik Sufa, which is a term I had used previously. And that, of course, means a Tikkun, a correction or rectification of the phenomena called Namadik Sufa. And what the phenomenon of Namdik Sufa is, the concept of Namdik Sufa was explained previously as a feeling that one gets when one enjoys great good without having earned it at all. That is the concept of Namdik Sufa. In other words, by earning this good through the performance of specific tasks, that feeling is removed, enabling one to experience the absolute good without any negative feeling Concurrent with uh, concurrent to the experience. Therefore, the ultimate good, the experiencing of absolute good, without any feeling whatsoever of some sense of loss of self-respect, some sense of shame, is the ultimate purpose of creation. It is hatova shlema, which is hatova with a tikkun of namidik sufa. That is it's what its real term is. That is the ultimate purpose of all creation. And all other purposes are subsumed under that purpose itself. Now, once we understand this, then it is clearly evident that everything that exists, in other words, all creation, both above the spiritual universe and below the physical universe, was created only because the Rabbanish Lerm deemed them absolutely crucial and necessary in furthering the ultimate purpose which I have stated previously. That's the reason why they were created. Because in some way, they can further or advance the achievement of the ultimate purpose of creation. This then, is the most fundamental principle of all, being. In that it is a true explanation for why everything exists. Every being that was created, whether it be spiritual or physical, <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> whether the untold number of beings, the various types of beings, the way they look, the way they behave, their characteristics, their attributes, their properties, the boundaries and limitations which are imposed upon these beings, even the natural laws that they exist under and must conform to, also, the exact number in any one species, their time period for existence, everything can be explained based on their part in advancing the ultimate purpose of creation, which of course is Hatova without any Namadik Sufo or Hatova Shlemo. And that really is a remarkable statement. That everything can be explained about all creation, every nook and cranny, every entity, the reason why it exists, the way it looks, why there are a certain amount of types, the characteristics, the limitations. And it doesn't make a difference whether these entities are in the physical universe or the spiritual universe. Everything can be explained in terms of how they advance the ultimate purpose of creation. And that is exactly why they exist. In fact, you can state it negatively. If they did not further the ultimate purpose of creation, then they would not exist at all. In other words, not only 
do things or entities exist because they advance the process or the ultimate purpose, but if they did not contribute in any way toward the, the ultimate, uh, the realization of the ultimate purpose of creation, they would not exist. And if they were created, they would cease to be. That's how precise and exact is the Rabbani Shalom in his requirements for entities in order to exist at all. Nothing exists without a reason. And the reason in this case being that they must somehow contribute toward the advancement of the ultimate purpose of creation. It is interesting to note that the extinction of an entire species cannot occur through any means at all if their existence is yet required to advance the ultimate purpose. In other words, man can only annihilate various species of animals because their part in creation has ceased, which is also a very interesting statement. That we think, or men think, that the reason why species become extinct is because they continuously try to exterminate them. For whatever reasons, man wants to do it. But that's a mistake. Nothing can cease to be unless its reason for existence has ceased. And what is the reason for existence? The fact that it plays a part, it contributes toward the furthering of the ultimate purpose of creation. And people, no matter how much they try, no matter what means they employ, cannot terminate, annihilate, exterminate anything if it still must perform a specific purpose, which will be part of the advancing of the ultimate purpose. It's that fundamental. <clears throat> this we see, therefore, that the principle of advancement of purpose, this fundamental idea, is not only necessary to bring beings into existence, no, this is not only a law that makes things be, but also that their continued existence is also governed by this most fundamental principle of being. <clears throat> that if they have a reason to be, if they can still contribute toward creation, then they will be. If not, then anybody can destroy them. That's how simple it is. Now, of course, we do not know how things contribute toward the ultimate purpose. If we did, we would be able to explain everything, literally everything. And the truth is that is one of the mysteries of creation. The knowledge of exactly what the ultimate purpose is, and obviously I only describe it in general terms, but the exact nature of the ultimate purpose and all the different elements that must be in place for that ultimate purpose to be achieved. If we understood that, we would understand the underlying rationale of all creation, all being, and any question that you wanted to ask. <clears throat> now, the natural laws and the essence of all things was thus ordained by the Rabbanu Shlam, so that they should be best fitted and able to achieve the specific purpose that they were created for in terms of their contributing toward the realization of the ultimate purpose of creation. In other words, when you look at, for instance, a beaver, why is it a beaver knows how to build a dam? Okay? Why does a porcupine have quills on its back? And so on. Why is it that uh, uh, penguins can't fly? There are all the billions of questions you can ask about any animal or anything. Um, these can be explained if we understand how they contribute toward the advancement of the purpose. 
In other words, that the natural law and the actual essence that all entities possess is uh, embedded in them because that is exactly what they need to bring out or to uh, pursue the specific purpose for their own creation or the purpose for their creation and in other words how it contributes toward the ultimate purpose of creation. <clears throat> Thus we see <clears throat> that all beings have all that is necessary for accomplishing their own specific purpose. Nothing more and nothing less. They have nothing more than what is required and they have nothing less than what is needed. They have exactly what they need. So interestingly, so far, <clears throat> we see that the principle <clears throat> of the advancement of the ultimate purpose is the underlying principle that describes the essence of things, the natural law of things, the time allotted for these things, and uh, all the different uh, properties that these things have. And of course, also, the, the, as I mentioned, the continued existence of these beings. Now, since each thing was initially created for a particular reason and purpose, it is of course necessary that they be maintained and given the strength and opportunity to accomplish their intended objective. Obviously, if things or beings have a specific purpose, then they have to be given the total wherewithal to be able to accomplish that purpose. Now, after Rebbeinu created all things, he therefore continues to oversee them in other words, he continues to be involved with them and maintain them in their desired state. So, just in summary, <clears throat> what we see is that creation has an ultimate purpose, which is called Hatova Shlema, which is really Hatova with the Tikkun of Namnik Sufa. That's why it's called a perfect good. Also, we see that the idea or the principle of uh, advancement toward this ultimate purpose determines really everything. And if one were really to understand the ultimate purpose and exactly what is needed to bring about the ultimate purpose, you would understand everything that is, why it exists, its history, its progression, its characteristics, its attributes, and so on. You'd also understand its limitations and parameters and why it exists for the time limit that it does. So that is obviously a very fundamental idea. The concept that creation has an ultimate purpose the statement that the ultimate purpose is a Hatovish Shlema and the idea that the underlying rationale of all being is that it contributes toward the advancement of the ultimate purpose and that is its determining principle in all its various aspects. And just as a closing remark to this uh, idea of ultimate purpose and the principle of advancement of purpose is the idea that in the future world we will understand a great deal of why it had to be so in order to bring about the ultimate purpose of creation. However, uh, we will not understand everything. There are things which exist, which are, is not exist. In other words, the, the uh, contribution that they make toward the advancement of the purpose, the ultimate purpose, is so profound that it is beyond human comprehension. For instance, why does a tiger look the way it does? Why do animals look the way they do and so on? There are certain things which are so beyond comprehension 
that we will not know them. But a great amount we will know. We certainly will know the, the, the progression of history. We will know, in fact, you will know why everything occurred to you. Everything. And what it, why it happened and how it made you advance the process, advance the purpose even more effectively. That you will know. But as to why everything is, why species have exactly that number, those characteristics, why natural law is the way it is, why things look the way they do, and so on, there are many questions which will remain unanswered because the answer lies in a realm that is beyond human comprehension. But anyway, the rule is still true. The principle, the governing principle is still true that all things exist and every aspect of their existence is true or is determined by the fact that each thing plays a certain part in advancing or furthering the ultimate purpose of creation. Now, when we talk about the Rabbani Shalom's involvement with his creation, we can distinguish three kinds of involvements that God has with creation. One is called the existential involvement. The second one is called the supervisional involvement. And the third is called the ontological involvement. And that really is the uh, three different kinds of interactions or involvements that the Rabbanishim has with this creation. Now, as we will see, the reason why he is involved with creation in these three ways, which we will discuss, is to ensure that the ultimate purpose of creation happens. That's why he is involved in these three ways. Because the Rabbanishim wants the ultimate purpose to exist and man cannot stop the ultimate purpose of creation from being realized. That is one of the mysteries of God. Is how is it possible that man who has free will and therefore can frustrate the plan and purpose of God, how is it possible that he must direct creation toward the ultimate purpose, notwithstanding his free will? How does the Rebbe do that? That is one of the profound mysteries of the Hashgochah, the interaction that God has with the world, that he pushes man in a certain direction, no matter how much man wants to go away from it, man still has to go in the direction of the purpose of creation. But in any case, there are three kinds of involvement that the Rebbe has with his Bria. <clears throat> the first one is called the existential involvement, which means that the Rebbe creates or brings into existence all beings that's the first idea of this involvement. And the second idea is that he maintains them, or he rather he continues to maintain their existence constantly. That's the second part of the idea called existential involvement. Because beings that are created do not have the, uh, do not have the ability to maintain their own existence even after being created. Thereby, it necessitates the Rabbanishlams constant involvement and maintenance of their existence. So that's the first involvement that God has with his universe, with his creation, that he brings the creation into existence, and secondly, that he continues to maintain their existence from one infinitesimal time to another infinitesimal time, and so on. Because all creation does not have the wherewithal inherently to maintain their own existence. 
Therefore, the Rosh has to actively continue to maintain their existence. That is how the Rosh is involved in creation, existential involvement, that he creates and he maintains the existence of a creation, of his creation, constantly. That's his first involvement. The second involvement of the Rabbanu Shalom toward its creation is called supervisional involvement. This involvement, by the way, is also called Hashgoho. And Hashgoho means to oversee or to supervise. Now, what is that? This concept means that the Rabbanu Shalom issues every order, directs the exact course of the order, and oversees its precise execution um, <clears throat> completely. That's what the Rabbanu does. That every order, every command is issued by God, that the exact manner of fulfilling that command is also uh, uh, um, uh, given by the Rabbanu and that the Rabbanu oversees um, th- uh, the beings who are carrying out his command and to make sure that they execute it properly. Now, as will be seen later, all orders or commands from the Rabbanu Shalom are carried out by an army of agents or emissaries that were created for that specific purpose, namely, to fulfill the wishes of God. Thus, the Rabbanu Shalom does not carry out or perform his will by himself. Rather, he created an infinite variety or and an infinite number of agents that perform his will and do his bidding. These agents are the ones who actually operate creation. The Roshim does not do things by himself in the sense that it is observable that God is the doer. God is not the doer, rather the agents are the doers who are being directed and overseen by the Rabbanu Shalom. And of course, they do not see God giving them the order, they just know what the will of God is. Nobody knows how God does. Nobody knows how God interacts. Nobody knows how God, nobody knows how God acts in the Bria. Because nobody knows who God is, where He is located, what He is, and so on. The only thing that we can see is that we know, or the, the agents know what the Revolution want, and lo and behold, they are given the power to do that thing. And they do it, and there it is. It actually happens. But nobody knows how the Rabbanu Shalom actually brings things about. Now, as I said, these agents are the ones who actually operate creation. But the direction of the operation is dictated to them solely by the Rabbanu Shalom. And they adhere strictly to his wishes. Thus, the Rabbanu Shalom relates to creation via an army of intermediaries, just as a king relates to his kingdom via his ministers and officers who also serve as intermediaries between the king and his kingdom. In fact, in this respect, the kingdom of heaven is exactly like the kingdom of a king on earth. One parallels the other. And Chazal have a st- saying that Malchus Durakia ke'i Malchus Ara, the kingdom of heaven parallels, is similar to the kingdom on earth. And that is the way the Rabbanu Shalom conducts his world. Just like a king on the earth, he relates to his kingdom via his ministers and his officers, 
and they do not necessarily see the king, the same thing with the Rabbanu Shalom, that the Rabbanu Shalom relates the creation via his emissaries and his agents, who he orders and commands, and the creation does not see the king who is issuing the order. It's the same idea. Now, why the Rabbanu Shalom relates the creation that way is one of his mysteries. But that is the way he set up creation. That he will relate to creation, not openly, but via emissaries or agents. And it's the same idea in the earth, where a king relates to his kingdom via agents or emissaries, which are his ministers and officers. Therefore, we see that the Rebbe orders and directs and oversees every aspect and detail of creation and its continuous progression. In other words, the Rebbe alone issues every order, and not merely approves orders originating from his agents. It's not that he says, okay, you run it the way you want, but check in with me to see if I agree. No. Everything that they do is told to them what they have to do. In other words, he issues the order and not merely confirms or agrees or, 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 or confirms or, or approves what they are doing. In addition to the fact that he issues every order, he directs the exact course of his command and the way it is to be carried out. He tells the angel or the malach or the agent, this is the way it has to be done. In addition, he oversees the exact execution of his orders to uh, <coughs> taking place through his agents. Thus we see that the Revolution governs all creation from the highest, from the highest uh, being actually to the lowest being from the highest realm which we know as Silus, to the lowest realm which of course is Ilmatsiya from the greatest entity to the lowest entity or the lowest created being thus his agents are the operational managers over creation now these agents are called malochim or angels from the word malocha which means work or activity because they carry out the work of creation. As I said, they are the operational managers. Therefore, they are called malochim from the, malochim from the word malocha. Now, another important idea. The fundamental guideline or criteria which determines the nature of every order issued by God is that it must advance the ultimate purpose of creation, which we know is Hatova Shlema, for specific beings in Oilam Habo. That is the criteria. In other words, anything that God says, God orders, or God commands, is issued for only one reason. And that is that the order in some way is going to bring creation toward its ultimate purpose. If it does not bring creation, further creation toward its ultimate purpose, it won't be issued by God. It's as simple as that. Therefore, we know that just like creation has an underlying rationale, which is the advancement of the purpose, every order, the complete Rotsen Habure, is based on this fundamental idea that it must advance the process or the purpose of creation. It is that precise and it is that exact. Now, the third involvement of the Rebbe toward his creations 
is termed the ontological involvement, and it is the most mysterious involvement of all. It is an absolute mystery of which we can never really know. What is that involvement? Now, the ontological involvement means that the Rabbanishlam, in truth, actually does everything that transpires in creation, even though it appears that his agents do it all and merely follow his orders. God does everything, nobody else. Even though it appears to the agents that they are doing it and they are following his orders. Now, what does that mean? Since the Rabbanishlam, and follow my argument and logic, <clears throat> Since the Rabbanishlam is existence itself and therefore is the source of existence for his emissaries, is the source for their spiritual bodies, their power to act, and their very sense of self as distinct from the Rabbanishlam, in other words, the Rabbanishlam is a source of being for all these ideas. <coughs> And in reality, is them, even after creating them, since they must possess and contain existence or the Rabbanishlam in every aspect of their being, including their self, which sees itself as distinct from the Rabbanishlam, or else it could not exist at all. It follows that it is really he that does everything completely, allowing his agents the illusion of there being a yesh, or independent being, and therefore that they are the ones responsible for operating creation. In other words, since the Rabbanishim is existence, and obviously he is the source of existence for all spiritual entities, and everything, all their aspects, in order for them to be, they must have God in them, in every aspect of their being, because God is existence, so therefore, everything, every aspect of them which exists must have God in them. If that's the case, even their self, which sees itself distinct from God, also must have God in it. Because if God was not in it, it would not be, because He is existence. If that is the case, then God is identical to them. Because every aspect of that being has to have existence. And if God is existence per se, then every aspect of their being is God. So then who is doing the activity? The answer is God and not them. This state of affairs where the Rabbanishlam really does everything completely <clears throat> is not only true by his agents in the spiritual world, but is also true in the physical world. This ontological involvement of the Rabbanishlam that the Rabbanishlam has with his creation, in other words, that he is identical with his creation, and the truth is that he is infinitely greater and larger than creation, this ontological involvement is the most profoundest mystery in all existence, and is the mystery of Enid Mavadoi. That is the mystery of Enid Mavadoi, that we are God, because all aspects of ourselves, all aspects of creation must have existence or it would not be. But if God is existence, that, must, that means that they are completely full of God. So then the question is, who are they? If they are identical to Rabbanishlam. 
That is the mystery of Einoid Mavadoi. How is it possible that a being can exist independent of God, yet necessitate the being of God to be involved in every aspect of their being because God is existence, therefore they must have existence in every aspect. So therefore they are God. So then how is it possible for them to exist independently? How is it possible for a self to see itself as independent from God? And we see why there's because everything is identical to God because everything has God totally in its being or else with that aspect where God was not present would cease to be therefore if everything must have existence in all its aspects it therefore must have God in all its aspects because God is existence so then the question is how can we differentiate an external being to God. Nobody knows. It is the mystery of Ein Oid Mavadoi that besides God there is nothing else. Because everything borrows or partakes of the existence of God totally and therefore where is there room for themselves? Nobody knows. But the truth is that the idea of Ein Oid Mavadoi exists at the same time as creation exists also. That even though we are God, because He is totally in us, every aspect of ourselves is totally in Him, therefore we are God, we also in some mysterious way exist independent of God to be able to observe or think about this idea in the first place. Because how would I even entertain the idea if I don't exist? How that comes about of course is totally unknown it involves an understanding of the uh, nature of God and of course what does it mean for a being to be pure existence now the existential involvement of the Rabbani Shlom and the ontological involvement of the Rabbani Shlom is not observable or perceptible by any created entity we do not observe the act of creation or the act of the maintenance of creation. We don't observe it in ourselves. We don't observe it outside of ourselves. We just know it is. And we certainly do not observe the idea that we are identical with God because we are a self that is able to think of this idea or is able to enjoy or be the recipient of the Hatova that God will bestow on us. So obviously we can't observe that either. As far as we're concerned, there is an aspect of us that is totally independent of the Rabbani Shlam and is not synonymous with God. We, of course, cannot observe that. But these two ideas are one of the most fundamental involvements that God has with creation. How we can exist and yet be God and how we can exist and be maintained and not even know that we have a source external to us and we are maintained by that source. Now, the Rebbe involves himself in that way because in that way, of course, it ensures the actualization of the ultimate purpose of creation by his three involvements with creation. And that is the connection to the previous ideas. By actually involving himself in these three ways, existential involvement, supervisional involvement, and ontological involvement, the Rebbe makes sure that creation can only go in the direction he wants, and that is that in Oilem Habo, there must be a community or beings 
that will be the recipient of his Hatova without an obstacle or impediment of Nam Niksufa. And this, of course, will take place in Elam Habo. That is the ultimate purpose, and it must happen notwithstanding the free will of men. And this concept, by the way, is called Yichud Han Hogosoy, that creation must go in one direction no matter what you do. Either you will advance creation through your will, or you will advance creation because God will use you as he does Rishoim. He will use you to advance and further creation, to advance and further the ultimate purpose. So therefore we see these are the three involvements that the Rishoim has with the Bria, and that this of course ensures that the Bria goes in the direction of establishing a community in Olam Habo that will be the recipient of of course Hatova Shlema, which of course is the Hasogas Yehudai that men will have in Olam Habo without any kind of impediment, without any loss of sense of self, without any loss of self-respect, without any kind of um, obstacle to experiencing this Hatova, which of course is Hasogas Yehudai, the, the realization, the comprehension via your own being that God is the source of your being, that He is existence per se, and that you emanate totally from Him. These are the things you realize. Besides that, you of course realize that God is the absolute master because obviously He who is being, and He, or rather He who um, establishes, creates, and maintains being, of course, is the absolute master. This is what we realize in the Ilam Habo. This is part of the Asoga of Yehudoi, and of course, uh, this is, uh, these are the ideas about the three kinds of involvements that the Rebbe has with creation. Now, I just wanted to, uh, just to mention what I had mentioned before, that again, that the Rebbe is involved ontologically with the Bria in the sense that he ultimately is creation, because since he is existence per se, the truth is that all creation needs him. They have to emanate from him. They have to partake of God himself in every aspect of their being, or else they would not be in that aspect did not, that did not contain him. Therefore, in a mystical way, God really is creation. So as far as God is concerned, there is no creation except him outside of himself. There is no creation except he alone is since all creation really is part of him. That is the mystery of Enid Muvadoi, that he is the only thing that is, because he is pure existence, and everything else that has that pure existence really is him. However, on our level of understanding, there is a thing called Yeshed Muvadoi, or rather, that is the illusion of Yeshed Muvadoi, and that is the concept that the Rebunashim in some way created a self that can perceive itself as different than the Rabbanu Shlom. Even though that self itself is imbued or pervaded with God itself, in some way that is a nivra, that is a created entity that actually sees itself distinct from God. And um, that is meant by the idea when it says that Moli kol that the Rebbeinu fills or pervades all creation, it doesn't mean that God pervades all creation outside of the person, but that all creation is pervaded by the presence of God 
totally. In other words, the entire individual is pervaded by the existence of God. Therefore, in a mystical sense, we are completely composed of the Rabbanu Shlam. But I want to make one important distinction. And that is that there is a difference the way we view our relationship to God and the way the Eastern doctrines view their or man's relationship to God. As far as they're concerned, and I'll talk about that more when we get to yoga, they believe that man is God. Man is God, that a man is really God. What Judaism believes, of course, is not that, because that the truth is that is minus, because that deifies man. What Judaism says is that man is part of God. In other words, man is totally God, but there is an aspect of man which is a nivra, and it is the nivra, it is man in Ilam Habo that realizes that he is a nivra and that he is part of God. But Man realizes that he is part of God, that the self which is created and can view God realizes that it is really part of God, that it emanates from the Rabbanu Shlam, and it realizes that the source of its being, of course, is the Rabbanu Shlam. But in no way does the self in Ilam Habo see itself as God, because that self is a Nivra. The concept of a distinct entity itself is a created being. And man, insofar as he is distinct from God, <clears throat> in other words, that he is a self that can view God, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> insofar as that is concerned, he realizes that he really is part of God and he emanates from the Rabbanu Shlam. But he never realizes, because it is absolutely false, that man is God, <clears throat> that the self is God. That is false. Man is a created entity that derives from God, emanates from God, that God is a source, and that the substance of man, the substance of the soul, of the self, and so on, is God. But the distinction that the self has, as apart from God, is a created concept, and man realizes in Ilam Habo that he is part of God, and that is called Hasagus Yehudai. In the West, in the East, I should say, they feel that they are God, that they are part of this Atman, and that, of course, in Judaism, Judaic terms, that is minus, that is apicosis. And, uh, and uh, with that, I want to, you know, just uh, end the, the ideas of the uh, ontological involvement that the Rabbani Shalom has with creation. And the truth is that this last involvement is so mysterious that there is really nothing more that you can say about it than what I've said. There's no way to understand it really, because it is an absolute mystery. There's no way really to explain it other than the way I've tried to explain that the Rabbani Shalom is creation because he is existence. Therefore, we all, all creation, must partake of that existence of God. But at the same time, they possess a self which is distinct from God, which is really an illusion that the self has. But in some way, as far as they're concerned, the self does exist independent of God, and therefore it can perceive God independently in Ilm Habo. And uh, in Ilm Habo, it's able to perceive that it is emanated, that God is a source of its being. And that is really all that you can say about it. Now, we can now ask, what does creation consist of in general terms? 
Let us examine this first. Afterwards, we shall investigate the yachas, the relationship that the various created beings have with one another. Creation in general consists of two distinct elements, a physical dimension or universe and a spiritual dimension or universe. The physical universe contains two areas. The first is the astronomical, which includes the planets, the stars, and other heavenly bodies, for instance, comets. The second area in the physical universe is that of the terrestrial, which contains the Earth, land, water, and atmosphere. The physical universe is composed of two kinds of matter, animate matter, living forms, and inanimate matter, non-living forms. In this universe, there is almost an infinite amount of beings present, whether they be animate or inanimate. The beings of this universe are of an incredible variety of all different kinds of types, and each type is a distinct class or species. Each category or type of being contains its own characteristics, its own attributes, properties, and manner of behaving or acting in terms of itself and also in terms of its interacting with other entities. All these aspects are appropriate and desirable for each species according to their specific purpose. And as mentioned before, that is exactly why they have these characteristics and properties. In addition, all the multitude of entities that inhabit the physical universe are subject uh, to an exact set of natural laws that is always operative, almost always, and defines, in other words, this set of natural laws defines both the actual conduct of each being and the parameters and limitations that it exists in. Now, physical substance or matter is that which is either perceived, in other words, it's seen, felt by the other senses, or otherwise detectable through various physical means by man. All physical entities are either seen, felt, or detectable. Mental activity is also termed physical because it can also be detected by man. Brain waves, you know, and so on. We are, we are aware of our own thinking and so on. Now, the physical universe is composed of four forms of matter which can be represented by earth, water, air, and fire. Earth represents solids, water represents liquid, air represents gas, and fire represents energy. Thus, there, these four elements are not the elements of matter. There are 92 natural elements that make up matter. But rather, these four elements represent the four ways or conditions that physical matter finds itself in the physical world. Physical matter exists in these four forms, namely solid, liquid, gas, and energy, because the physical universe reflects the influence, the influences of all three upper dimensions in the, in the uh, <clears throat> uh, spiritual world. Thus, Earth, which represents solids, is a substance arising from the influence or essence of Ilmasia, which essentially is a world of the concealment of the Rabbanishlam's oneness. In other words, one cannot see through solids generally. <clears throat> Therefore, matter in solid form represents accurately 
the essence of the existential plane of Oilam namely Hester. That is the idea of Earth. It represents solids, and the reason why matter expresses itself in the form of solids is because that is the <coughs> representation of Oilam which is occlusion, concealment. And generally speaking, you cannot see through a solid. <coughs> now, also, solids are the grossest and most intense form of matter, and that's exactly what Oilam is. It is the grossest form of matter. Now, the next element, which is water, represents liquids. And these, and, and, and water or liquids is a substance arising from the influence or essence of Oilam which is essentially a world where the Rebunishlam's oneness is very transparent. One can see through water to the bottom of the vessel, but only in a distorted way. In Oilam Yitzira also, the oneness of the Rebunishlam is readily transparent to the inhabitants of that world, but only in a certain degree of clarity. In other words, water is an exact uh, parallel to the clarity of Oilam Yitzira. You can see through water, you can see through liquids, but in a distorted manner. The same idea is in Oilimitsira. There, the inhabitants of Oilimitsira can see the clarity of the oneness of the Rabbanishlam, but also in a certain amount of distortion, because even in Oilimitsira, there is a certain amount of Hester. In other words, there is, a, there is still Hester, although infinitesimally less than our world in Oilimitsira. Thus, the liquid form represents transparency of the Rabbanishlam's oneness but still with a certain degree of distortion or hester present. Liquids also are a more finer form of matter in that it assumes the boundaries of its container, indicating that it is less dense and less gross than solids. So that is the second element, which is of course uh, liquid, which is represented by water, and that arises from the influence of Oilimitsira on Oilimitsira. And in Oilimitsira, you have a degree of clarity of the divine oneness, which is profound. And, uh, but there's still some kind of obscurity, because even in that world, they don't see the oneness in its full manifestation. Therefore, the liquid or water which represents that substance of Oilimitsira also has a degree of tr transparency, but also not total transparency. And also, it's a much finer form of matter. It's not as dense or gross as solid matter. So those are the first two elements, uh, first two forms that matter uh, appears in, in this world. Now, the third element is air or gas. And gas or air is a substance that arises from the influence or, e or essence of oil and bria on the physical world. And what Oilam Bria is essentially a world of unbelievable clarity and brilliance of the divine oneness throughout all creation. That's what Oilam Bria is. Therefore, gas, which is represented by air, also reflects that substance. One can see literally right through the air of the atmosphere or through almost any gas without any obscurement or distortion at all. Thus, air or gas is a form of matter that reflects the incredible clarity of reality that one has in Olympria by the properties of air itself.
So therefore, ear is a manifestation or arises because of the influence of oil and bria in oil masiyah. And just like you can see through air, you can also see through oil and bria. And also that air is the finest form of matter, the least densest, which of course reflects oil and bria, which contains the purest form of substance ever created. Those beings that inhabit oil and bria are extremely subtle and they are the purest form of substance that was ever created. And air or gas is the same idea, that it is the purest form of substance, having the least amount of density and grossness in the physical world. Now the last one, the last uh, element, which is fire, represents energy. And it's interesting to note that energy is a totally different form of matter than the previous three. It is different than solid, liquid, or gas. It is very different. <clears throat> And this form of matter reflects Ulam Atsilus, which is the world of divine emanations, the world of the spheres of the Shekhinah itself. Now, as Ulam Atsilus is the world where the manifestation of God exists to, through, to the entire creation. So, in a certain sense, the spheres can be looked on as the guise of God. The way we perceive God is really the way we perceive the spheres. Now, Therefore, fire is a form of matter arising from the influence and the essence of Oil Matsilus, which is the world of causation. Thus, just as energy is the underlying element that is required in all phenomena because it is the force that makes phenomena be, so also is the spheres of Oil Matsilus the underlying element that is the ultimate cause and force of all phenomena that exists. Also, the spheres of Oilem Atzilus, which is the guise of God, is the most subtle existence of all. It is the most subtle entity in all creation. Fire also is the finest and purest form of matter, and is also the form of matter which, of course, is symbolized by energy. In addition, just as the spheres of Oilem Atzilus differ totally in their composition from the inhabitants of the other three worlds, so also energy, which is of course symbolized by fire in this world, differs totally in their composition from the other forms of matter. Energy, or fire, is neither solid, liquid, nor gas. It is not matter really. Nobody really knows what energy is. It is something which is not perceivable, which is interesting. And the same idea as the spheres. Spheres are not perceivable by the nevroim. The parallels between fire and energy in Ulam Atzilus is really incredible. And the reason why we have this form of matter in this world is because that form of matter arises from the influence of the Ulam Atzilus itself. So therefore we see, actually, uh, and finally fire Another parallel is that finally fire can give off sparks without being affected or diminished in turn. So also the spheres generate and give off all reality without being affected at all. Fire is a source of sparks and it never is diminished or affected. The spheres are the same idea, that they give off, they emanate all creation and they themselves are not diminished or affected. We see therefore that each of these four elements earth, water, air, and fire, 
Iwaf for short, represents a form. In other words, we see therefore that each of these four elements represents a form that matter exists in, whether it be solid, liquid, gas, or energy. And these forms of matter arise in the physical world because of the influence of the higher three worlds, namely Yitzira, Bria, and Atzilus, on the physical universe. And <clears throat> this is basically what I wanted to speak about, the first element of creation, which is the physical universe. Now, the second element of creation is the spiritual world <clears throat> or universe, which are comprised of entities that are vastly to su superior to physical ones. They cannot be perceived by the eye, felt by other senses, or detected by any physical means whatsoever. It is impossible to detect, to see, or to feel, by any other sense, a spiritual entity. <clears throat> if spiritual entities want to reveal themselves to physical beings, then they must don the physical garb. They assume physicality, but not in their nature. They sort of like put on, like we put on clothing. They, they envelop themselves in a physical body. But that physical body has nothing to do with the spiritual entity. That's the only way man can perceive them. It is impossible to perceive them in their true nature. Another way they can reveal themselves to man is by arising in his imagination. Using the imagination faculty of the mind and initiating some kind of an image. And when you're in the trance state, or sleeping or whatever, you see these images reflecting spiritual beings. But that occurs, of course, in either Nevoa, Ruch Kodesh, or prophetic dreams. Outside of those two forms, there is no way that we can perceive spiritual beings. No radio we can turn on. They don't give off anything that is detectable in the physical universe. Now, also, they have specific characteristics, attributes, or properties and also manner of behaving or acting in terms of themselves and in terms of their interacting with other spiritual beings. Each one has a distinct nature. They also have precise parameters and limitations that determine their existence and activities. All these aspects, of course, are appropriate and necessary according to the specific purpose in the general design and plan. Sometimes people think that spiritual beings can do whatever they want. But the spiritual universe has, is very much in parallel to the physical. They must conform to their laws just like we have to conform. They cannot do what they want. The spiritual entities are also almost limitless in number and are divided into many distinct types. Each type or class of spiritual entity being vastly different from other classes of entities. So much so that one can say that they constitute many different speci species of spiritual beings. There is, however, one important general rule that applies to the entire class of spiritual entities. That is the fact that their actual nature and properties cannot be comprehended or grasped by man in the way that they truly exist. All we know is that such spiritual entities exist, and we are aware of some concepts relating to them as handed down by the Nevi'im, the prophets, and by the Chazal, the sages. These spiritual entities consist of a substance that is distinctly spiritual and, and, and is not at all physical. In addition, all the myriad spiritual entities that exist in the spiritual universe 
are subject to precise and specific natural laws that is generally always operative and regulates and defines both the actual conduct of each being and also the limitations under which it is restricted. So therefore we see so far that the spiritual universe is very similar to the physical. Just like the physical has limitless numbers, different types, specific laws and characteristics and, and, and so on and properties, the same idea is in the spiritual universe. They have their own characteristics, their own laws. They're also they have limitless numbers and also they have many, many different categories. So we see that there are really two parallel universes, a physical one and a spiritual one. And um, we will be taking a look at exactly what are the constituents of the spiritual universe. What are the beings specifically that comprise the spiritual universe? Now, the general class of spiritual beings or entities can be considered to be of three types. Three kinds or categories of spiritual beings. And this is really what constitutes the population of spiritual entities in the spiritual domain or spiritual, spiritual plane. The first kind is called Koychis Nivdolam, which means transcendental forces. Koychis means forces, Nivdolam means separate or distinct or transcendental. The first category, therefore, is called Koychis Nivdolam, transcendental forces, or Koychis, forces. That's the first kind of spiritual being which I will be talking about. The second kind of spiritual being is called Malochim, or angels, which of course we have heard. And the third kind of spiritual being, or entity, that I will be talking about is Neshamas, souls, or uh, their other term is called Nefoshis Elyonis, which means upper souls, as distinct from Nefoshis Tachtonis, lower souls, which I have discussed previously. Now let's go through each one and try to understand something about them. And then later on what I will do is to try to understand the relationships between these spiritual entities and the physical world. And this is necessary to understand the before we uh, begin the topic of Shinui Teva, which is the alteration of natural law, and Kishif, which is the, of course, sorcery. Now, the first class of spiritual entity that I had mentioned is called Kirchis Nivdolam, or transcendental forces, or separate or distinct forces. Now, Kirchis Nivdolam, or Kirchis, as I shall call them, forces, they are very pure. Now, what does pure mean? They have absolutely no materialism, no Geshem. Geshem means materialism. No material aspect about them. Not only that, but even in terms of spirituality, remember they exist on the spiritual realms, their spiritual substance is extremely fine as spiritual beings go. Now, they are superior spiritual entities which are not meant to be associated with, with uh, physical entities at all. In other words, they have no physical garment, nor at any point will they ever have a physical garment, a physical body as a garment or covering. Now, these kuchis, these forces, are the closest entities to the covered or the shechina, the divine presence of God. And the Rabbani Shalom is enormously revealed 
to them. Now, you may ask why, and the answer is that uh, they reside in a certain spiritual plane which is the closest to Ilm Atzilis, which is the world of the divine Shekhinah, or the glory of God, or the manifestation of God. Now, they reside in Ilm Bria, the world of creation. And we know that the Ilm Bria, the world of creation, is the next world underneath Ilm Atzilis. And Ilm Atzilis, we know, is the world where the divine emanations uh, reside or inhabit. In other words, the spheres, if you want to call them the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, or the Kovid, the Glory of God, they, all these terms basically mean the same. Ulam Silas is where these, uh, these um, concepts reside, or entities reside. In Ulam Bria, which is the world of creation, which is the next world lower than that, these Kuches reside. In other words, they reside in Ulam Bria, and this is next to Ulam Atsilis, which of course is the world of spheres, the divine emanations, or the world of the divine presence, or the glory of God. Now they are called by various names. They are called Seraphim, they are called Ifanim, uh, uh, or Galgale Hakise, which means wheels of the throne. They reside in the world of creation, and uh, we also know that in the world of creation is also the divine throne. So, so far we have three entities in the world of creation, namely Nishamas, souls, uh, Nefoshes Elionis, uh, higher souls. We have Kuchis Nivdolam, the transcendental forces, and we also have the Kisya Kovid, the divine throne. Now, <clears throat> the next spiritual entity which I will mention is Malochim or angels. Now, angels are spiritual entities which are created to act as the agents or the emissaries or the servants of the Rabbani Shalom, doing the Rabbani Shalom's will and obeying his every commandment or tzivoy. Each malach is placed <clears throat> over a particular aspect or point in creation and placed in charge of it. In other words, the malachim are the ones that carry out the will of God because the Rabbani Shalom acts through malachim to allow his will to be realized. He does not interface directly with his creation, but rather he uses Malochim to carry out his will. <clears throat> Therefore, every aspect of creation, whether it be atoms, molecules, physical beings, any event or phenomena even, which of course is the interaction of physical entities, all these things, all these aspects of creation has a designated Malach in charge of it. There is a specific, particular angel or malach that oversees uh, these aspects of creation. Now, there are many levels of angels, each level giving rise to a different class of malach, but all class, classes belong to the general category of malach. In other words, there are really ten general categories or classes or levels of malachim, and each level contains malachim but they vary tremendously in terms of the different types of malach that is found in any one level. Each level of malachim has their own distinct characteristics, their own peculiar properties and limitations, which of course are appropriate and proper for the malachim in terms of furthering the ultimate purpose of creation. Now, malachim are divided in two general groups in terms of the nature of their function. In other words, we can distinguish between two classes of malochim. 
in terms of what they do. One group is appointed to do good. That's called the Kat HaToiv, the good group. Kat HaToiv, Kat, the good group or good class. And what they do is they are appointed to do good. Now, what is good? Good means to promote an enhanced being, whether it be a physical being or entity or a spiritual being or entity. Now, the other group is called Kat Hora, the evil group or the evil class. And they are appointed to do evil. In other words, whenever it is required to negate or to inhibit or to detract from being, to destroy, to punish, whatever, whether it be to physical entities or spiritual entities, these malachim that belong to the Katora, they are the ones that do it. In other words, <clears throat> malachim are divided functionally in these two categories. Those malachim which are appointed to do good, to serve the Rabbanishlam when he wants to enhance being, they're called katatoiv, the good group. Those malachim that are appointed for evil, when the Rabbanishlam wants to punish or detract being, they are called kathora, the evil class. Now, those appointed for evil are called malachi chavola, angels of destruction, that's one name for them, or mazikim, damage doers or injurious agents. Two names that apply to the malochim that belong to the Kat Hora. Now, it is important to remember that both groups of malochim serve the Rabbanu Shlam, and both are doing His will. They do not, nor can they, act independent of the will of God or the Hashgocha, the supervision that God uh, interfaces with the Bria. So therefore we see that even if malochim do bad or evil, it is at the direct order or command of the Rabbani Shlam, and not because they want to do it. They cannot do anything except if there is an order to do it, even if they are engaging in Ra, negating some aspect of some, some being, whether it be physical or spiritual. Now, Malochim in general inhabit Oilim Yitzira, and we know that Oilim Yitzira, from the top down, <coughs> is a third lower world. You have Oilim Atzilus, Oilim Bria, and then you have Oilim Yitzira, which is the world of Malochim in general. That's the world that they inhabit. And we also know from previous Shurim that the difference between worlds uh, is determined by the amount of divine presence or the amount of the perception of the oneness of God that you perceive at any one level. That determines the existential level of any of these worlds. Because that's really what these worlds are. There are different existential levels. Beings at any one, one level exist in a totally different way and perceive in a totally different way than beings that exist at any other level, any other world. <clears throat> now, malachim are also not meant to be associated in any way with physical bodies. They never enter bodies, they never leave bodies. They are not meant to be bound to any physical body. So therefore, so far we see that kuchis, forces, transcendental forces, and malachim angels are spiritual entities that are meant to be spiritual and they never are engaged or involved or bound with any physical material at all. Now sometimes however, just to, you know, as an exception, malachim do don a physical garb, but that's only in order to appear to man in the physical world. However, their inherent nature of course does not change and they of course 
remove the garb as soon as they return to the spiritual domain. That's important to remember. When I say that malachim are not intended to associate in any way with physical bodies, I mean in a permanent fashion. Neshamas, however, are, and that's the next, uh, the next entity that I want to discuss. Now, neshamas or souls, or as they are more accurately called, nefoshis elyonis, upper souls, because they are souls that derive from the spiritual universe, <clears throat> these neshamas are extremely pure, in other words, they themselves are not comprised of any geshem, any physical material. And they are very fine spiritual substance, unusually fine. They are spiritual entities that are destined to enter and become, and become strongly bound and attached to physical bodies, acting on these physical bodies in various ways at different times. And that's really what neshamas are. They are spiritual bodies that must merge with physical bodies. There are spiritual entities that must become attached to, in a very strong way, to physical bodies. Now, souls have their own particular characteristics, their own peculiar attributes and properties, <clears throat> as well as specific boundaries and limitations. In other words, just like we see specific boundaries, natural law, and limitations, in this earth, in the physical world, the spiritual entities also have these physical, these limitations, these parameters that they operate in. In fact, all creation operates under precise <clears throat> parameters and limitations. All beings, whether it be in the physical world or the spiritual world, can only behave in a well-defined and precise, regulated fashion. They cannot deviate from that. And their parameters, boundaries, their limitations, their characteristics, attributes, behaviors, and properties, all of these things are determined because whatever advances the purpose of creation, which is hatova shlemo, the best ultimate good, or from our standpoint, tikkun habriya, the rectification of creation, whatever advances or furthers that purpose determines exactly all these characteristics, attributes, properties, behaviors, parameters, limitations, and natural law of all the beings that inhabit either the physical universe or the spiritual universe, as I had mentioned previously. Now, the Shamas have two kinds of existences because they reside in two different states. One outside the body, in other words, before birth and after death, because the Nishama has an existence before it enters the body and after it enters the body after death. That's the first state, outside the body, and the second state is one that's inside the body. In other words, after birth, when the neshama is actually attached to the body. Souls have different properties that vary according to each of these two states. When the neshama is outside the body, before birth and after death, and they have different properties when the neshama is attached to the body. Now, souls also have different properties while in the state of being outside the body before birth, and different properties while in the state of being outside the body after death. The souls have three different sets of properties that manifest themselves during the three different existential states the soul exists in. Before birth, after birth, while it's attached to the body, and after death. So if the soul, depending on the time or, the, or, uh, or uh, when you perceive it, has different properties 
depending on if it's outside the body, inside the body, or even outside the body after death. Each time the soul has different kind of properties, which is appropriate for it in terms of what it must accomplish. Now, the combination of the spiritual entity called nefesh elyoino and the physical entity called body is called a human being or man. A neshama, a soul, is not a human. A body is not a human. It is the distinct combination of soul combined or attached with the body that is called human, human being. Of all things that exist, only man consists of a composite of two absolutely antagonistic opposites, namely a spiritual soul and a physical body. This is only possible because of a, di a divine decree compelling this incredible phenomena. Nothing in all creation even remotely resembles this situation. The situation where you have a spiritual entity that is compelled to be enforced to reside, be combined with and attached to a physical entity. Nothing in all creation has, a, has such a bizarre uh, state of being. And it can only be because the Rabbi Shalom is Geyser. He decrees that this must be so. And of course, when God decrees, that's exactly what must be. <coughs> now, it is important to note that one must be careful not to erroneously consider that other animals and living physical beings are the same as men in this respect. In other words, although living physical beings have a soul to animate them, and give them their distinct life characteristics, this soul which they have is not in any way a spiritual soul or entity. Although, although an animal soul may be the most subtle and ethereal of all physical entities, it, is still, it still does not enter the realm of the spiritual. Man is also a living creature and therefore has an animal or lower soul to animate him as well as give him his distinct life characteristics. And I had mentioned that was the nefesh tachtoina. This animal or lower soul, the nefesh tachtoina, which man possesses, is still only physical and not at all spiritual. It happens to be extremely subtle and ethereal, but it is still physical. Therefore, what that would mean is that it can be detected by some physical means, which is very interesting. Perhaps scientists later on will discover how to detect the nefesh tachtoina. Because if something is physical, if you recall the definition of something physical is that it, is, it either can be seen by the eyes, felt by the senses, or perceived or detected rather by some other physical means. It may be possible for scientists to be able to detect the nefesh tachtoina, which is the thing which animates physical substance or physical being. But the nishama, the nefesh which is spiritual, cannot in any way be detected by any physical means. Because the definition of spiritual entities, or spirituality, is that it cannot be detected or perceived by any physical means whatsoever. Therefore, this nefesh tachtoino, this animal lower soul, <clears throat> is still only physical and not at all spiritual. Now, besides this goof, and lower soul, nefesh tachtoina, man also has a transcendental, a separate soul, the nefesh elyoina, which is purely spiritual. It is only through the Rabbanu decree that they be bound together. 
And if you recall previously that the nefesh elyono is uh, is uh, identified as the self of the human. So we see, therefore, that the neshama is a transcendental is rather a transcendental being. It's a spiritual entity that will be connected, attached in a very strong way with a physical body. And it exists in three states, before, during, and after, or rather before birth, during uh, life, in the body, and after death. And it has different properties at different points of its uh, attachment or its relationship to the body, whether it be outside, in, or outside the body after death. Also, we see that a human being is a composite of a self, an ishama elyoino, and, of course, a guf. And that a human being is not either a guf or a nefesh. Uh, it's really the composite, and that's what really makes a man. And we see also that animals possess an animal soul, which animates them and gives them their life characteristics. However, uh, and man also possesses it, since he is living, and what animates all his uh, cells, his entire body, of course, is the nefesh tachtoina. What gives him specific mental characteristics, of course, is the nefesh tachtoina. However, the nefesh tachtoina is not spiritual. It is, uh, it is physical, even though it's subtle. And, uh, of course, man has, therefore, a guf, a body, a nefesh tachtoina, which is, of course, a lower soul, and a nefesh elyoina, which is a self, which, of course, is the real spiritual entity, which separates man from all physical substances or beings. Now, there is another class of created entities besides the physical and spiritual that is really an intermediary one. In other words, this class of created entities is an intermediary, inter it, it is intermediate between the spiritual and the physical. This class of entities is known as shadim or demons. They have certain attributes which are similar to the physical and certain attributes which are similar to the spiritual. That is, that in some ways, this type of entity, shadim or demons, shares the properties and limitations of the physical and in some ways is completely divorced from them, divorced from the physical, very different from the physical. They resemble also somewhat the spiritual because they have certain similar properties as the spiritual, but their essence is very different from spiritual beings. These entities have specific characteristics. They have specific or peculiar attributes, uh, properties and limitations. And they have their own natural law. These entities are also of many different types, but all types or all classes comprise one class of entities, and this cl class of entities, of course, is known as shadim or demons. In other words, shadim or demons are entities, and there are many different types of shadim, many different classes of shadim. But that is sort of like a fourth entity. It's not spiritual and it's not physical. It's sort of intermediate. And I bring it down just to mention that that is the fourth class of entities which seem to be spiritual but are really not. In other words, these four classes of entities, the koichos, the forces, the malachim, the angels, the uh, nishamas, the souls, and the shadim, the demons, are not physical. However, the shadim is also not spiritual, it's sort of like an intermediate, intermediate stage.